Um, my name is Kendall. I'm a pastoral intern here, and um, a little bit about me is that I've walked with God for a little while. Um, at, at first, I was on this kind of roller coaster journey where I was pretending at one moment to be uh, a Christian. I was pretending to really follow God, and then at other times, I wasn't even pretending at all. I was just blatantly living a life of sin and uh, rebelling against Him. And it wasn't until about five years ago that God really convicted my heart with the gospel that, that it's not about me that it's all about Jesus. And it's in that spirit that I want to ask us and introduce this series or the end of the series with a question. What does it mean for Jesus to be a part of your life? Now, if you've been here, we've been talking about this idea now for some weeks. We've talked about how Jesus is not a part of your past, how Jesus is not a part of your thoughts, how he's not a part of your heart, your future, your suffering, your worship, your marriage, your work. And now, today, we talk about how Jesus is not a part of your church. What does that mean? When I think about it, I'm a lister. I like to write things down. I like to detail things because I'm kind of ADD. I like getting things done, but I'm kind of all over the place too at times. You'll figure that out. But when I list down the priorities of my life, obviously I'm going to put Jesus first. Jesus is the very first importance in my life. He's the first thought that I think, hopefully, when I wake up in the morning, he's the first. If I sing songs in the morning, which you won't want to be there when I do, but um, he's the first song that I sing. He's the first, the first page that I read is to him, right? And then after I, I'm done with that, like a good list taker, I want to put my wife because there's no other human relationship that compares and really no one else that'll put up with me. <laughs> then my kids, my extended family, my church family, which love all of you guys, even though you don't know me. It's that kind of Christian love. Uh, then my work. And see, when I list out my life like this, I've got five things that I'm really trying to do well. And for some of us, putting Jesus first is definitely a good thing, right? And putting ourselves last before we do anything else, we put ourselves last, that's a great thing. But what I'm here to tell you is what I've actually just said is completely false. Now, before you stand up and walk away and say, wait a minute, what's this guy telling you? I'm going to challenge you even further and say Jesus is not even first in your life. Do not put Jesus first. And now you're really wondering where this guy's going. You see, the point of a list is that when you get to an item, you check it off. So that if you wake up in the morning and if you spend 30 quality moments or 30 quality minutes with Jesus, and that's a good day, right? And then you check him off. I just don't think Jesus died to give us that kind of life where we could put him down and check him off. You see, on my list, I've got five things. And if I do those five things well, then Jesus is the most important thing in my life, just 20% of my time. And we think, how is that possible? Now, you may be asking yourself, all right, Kendall, I get it. Don't put Jesus first, but where do I put him? I don't want to put him last. You said I can't put him first. So where do I put him? My heart would be that we take him off the list entirely, that Jesus would not be above my marriage, that he would not be before my marriage, but he would be in my marriage. He'd be shaping me and guiding me as a husband to love my wife and shaping her to put up with me. Jesus not above my kids or before my kids. He's in my relationship with my kids, shaping me, transforming me so that I can be a good dad. It's the reason we go to work. See, in our country, there's this sacred-secular divide. There's these compartments where a world tells us that you do your Jesus thing, you check him off, and then you go to your job. 
Jesus isn't involved in your job, right? But that's wrong. Jesus is at the very center of your character and the way that you live and the way that you uphold. So when people see you, they see Christ. So then all things, Jesus is at the center of everything. He's not a part of our list. He's not a piece of our life. He's at the center of it. Now, Abraham Kuyper is a Dutch Reformed theologian. We won't hold that against him. But uh, he said it like this. Oh, no. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, when we sit here today and we sit on all these little square inches and we look at all these little square inches and they're everywhere, then what does that tell us about his church? That it's not ours. That this building, that everything in it, our lives, all of us are his. Now, the question I have for us moving forward in this sermon is, are there little tiny areas in your life to which Jesus is not Lord, to which Jesus does not have ownership? Are there tiny things that you can pinpoint that Jesus, when he were to cry mine, it wouldn't be true because you're holding so tightly to it? If Jesus is a part of this church, and if all these little square inches add up to be his, we can no longer view this as an event. We can't view this as a place to drop our kids off and listen to the best music in town. And I'm thoroughly convinced that that is the truth. We have the best music in town. I mean, it... Anyway. <laughs> this is no longer the pregame show to the Patriots. I mean, I love the Patriots as much as anybody. But if Jesus is all of this, and we treat this like it's all of ours, then we're really trespassing on his property. Today, I want to talk about three types of people. I want to talk about two that treat Jesus and his church like it's just a part of their life. And then the third, I want to talk about what it means for Jesus to be all of our life. Turn with me to Acts 4, 34 through 35, and then we're going to go down to 5, 1, and 2. If you don't have it, it should be up on the screen. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each of them as they had need. Now, just a little background here. This is one of the very first examples we have of the early church functioning as a community. And what we see is they're not only growing numerically. They're not only making disciples, which are great things. But they've noticed and they've understand that the kingdom of God affects everything. It affects not just their life and every square inch of it, but every square inch of their community so that they literally transform poverty in a Roman empire where poverty was the greatest killer. See, they weren't just focused on evangelism. They weren't just focused on doctrine and dogma. It's great things. But they were devoting their gifts and their talents and their wealth and everything in their life they were devoting to the church and to Jesus. Now, as a clarifying remark, not everybody in this community was called to give their property. There were some who were totally blessed by God. They were great in real estate. They were great with their wealth. And those people really caught a vision for what God had, and they sold it and they gave it. And my heart is this, that there would be some of us here today, not me, I'm broke, <laughs> but there'd be some of us who were really skilled and really talented in real estate. And by giving something to the kingdom of God, you could transform lives and you could shape people for the gospel. 
But it's not just you. It's everybody. We all have gifts. If we're a Christian, we've been given talents and we've been given gifts so that we can serve his church. So that our mission really is to just be open to giving what Christ has already given to us. Before we go on, there's this idea of consecration. There's this idea of being devoted to something. See, these people were consecrating their property and they were devoting it over to God. I wrote it down in my notes like this, that they were forfeiting their rights over their things and transferring them into the ownership of God. Now, my question is, what are some areas of your life you've chosen not to give over to God? It could be physical property and it could be any number of things. But sit with that. What are some things that you've chosen not to give? And as you do that, let's turn to Acts 5, 1 through 2. We're going to talk about two people who literally did that. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples' feet. Now, there's two things I want to talk about here, and there's a lot here that we could talk about. But first, they held back something that they had devoted entirely to God. See, when you claim that something is God's, you're transferring your rights of it and your ownership of it so that all of it is his, but yet they lied. They gave just a very small part of it and claimed that they were doing it for whatever motivation it was to look cool, to be accepted by the church. I don't know. But they held it back. Now, the other thing I want to talk about here is this word he kept back for himself. Now, in English, it's five words. It's a phrase. Subject, verb, predicate for my grammar majors. But in Greek, in the original, it's just one word. And it's got really two ideas behind it. It's a completed action. It's something that had already happened in his heart and in his action so that when he came in front of Peter, it was done. He'd already held it back. But there's another idea here that means that it was for his own benefit, that he didn't just hold it back for the sake of holding it back. He did it really for himself. So that when you look at what was happening in the community, this is in stark contrast to everything else that was going on. See, everyone else was giving, Anais and Sapphira were taking. Everybody else was living for everyone else's benefit, but they were living for the benefit of themselves. But there's another thing, one word. It'll challenge us, and it's challenged me. As I was looking at the definition of this word, and I was looking at all the usages of it, the real core, the center of it is embezzling. And you may be asking yourself, Kendall, how can Ananias and Sapphira embezzle? I mean, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but embezzling is transferring something of someone else's into your own account, right? But this was their property. Peter even acknowledges that a couple verses down, that it was theirs to do with as they wished. So how do these people embezzle from God? See, it's when you realize that they had taken something that they had promised to God and devoted to God, and they're ripping it away from God, and they're trying to use it for their own benefit, that you realize that really what they're doing is embezzling, and they're stealing. Now, you may be asking yourself, Kendall, how does this apply to my life? That's great. You and your Greek, you and your little seminary stuff, how does, how does this apply? You know, I can understand, Kendall, if you were preaching a sermon, Jesus is not a part of my real estate, but how does this apply to the church? Well, let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See what Paul's saying? 
that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, that the ownership of our life was transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous kingdom of light. We are not our own. God took our broken down houses, our shacks, and flipped them and transferred them into his account so that we cannot any longer stand idly by but live new and transform lives for the glory of Jesus and for the good of his church. Notice what Jesus does. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher, if I then the master of the universe, if I then the creator of all things have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, you know, I'm quoting Jesus. That's a pretty high bar, right? I don't know any of us who are living like Jesus all the time. Let's talk about Peter. And I love Peter because he's enough of a screw-up that we can relate. And he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Now the point, if Jesus is just a part of your life, then you're going to hold back. You're going to hold back your gifts, your talents, and in a way that you're not just robbing God because that's what you're doing but you're also robbing each and every single person sitting here from the gifts that God purposely poured into you so that you could purposefully pour into us. See, we were created to be a service to others. But if Jesus is just a part of your life, then you're holding back. And I want to ask, how are you holding back from God? What are the areas of your life that you've decided, I'm not going to give Jesus lordship, I'm not going to give him reign? we all have our areas. What are they for you? Let's look at another episode. So we've talked about the first way that you can live with Jesus being a part of your life. Now let's look at Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they traveled along, he, that's Jesus, entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him. And she had a sister named Mary and who also sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much preparation, so that she approached and said, Lord, is it not a concern to you that my sister has left me alone to make preparations? Then tell her to help me. Now, a little bit of the background here is we've got a really common event and an uncommon event. See, in first century Israel, a woman would have joyfully served a guest in her home. It would have been expected of her, but she would have poured out into it as an act of love for that guest. But not just a guest. This is a rabbi. This is a Jewish teacher who is really at the upper echelons of the society. But this is not just any Jewish teacher. This is the most famous Jewish teacher in all of Israel. This is Jesus, who's drawing thousands of crowds. If there were mega churches back then, he would be preaching at one. But this is not just a popular guy. This is a guy who's claiming to be God. A guy who, when Daniel talks about 600 years before this event happens, that he is coming to break the curse of sin, that he is coming to start an everlasting kingdom, and this man is God in the flesh, this was the greatest meal that Martha ever cooked. This is the greatest service that she ever gave. This, is, this was an act of worship, right? Then there's an uncommon event. So you've got Mary, who's 
at least according to Martha, she's checking out. She's just hanging out at Jesus' feet. She's not worried about serving him, not worried about loving him, just sitting there listening. And really, that's uncommon in the first century because women were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi, or at least it was, it was not so accepted. But the more uncommon event of all of us is Jesus celebrates Mary, and he celebrates her sitting at his feet, but yet he corrects Martha. Look at what it says. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. Just so you know, anytime you see a name repeated in the Bible, when someone's speaking to another person, it just tells you that he loves that person, that there's a relationship with that person. So he's not, he's not scolding her. He's gently and lovingly correcting her. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but few things are necessary or only one thing. For Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, you see, Jesus affirms his relationship with her, but yet he does not affirm her motivation and her behavior. Now, let me ask, is there anybody out there that's doing all the right things? They're serving Jesus with all their heart, but they're missing him? It just seems so weird to think about. See, the key to the understanding this in, in this passage is through another word that Luke uses. See, he uses it twice. When he describes someone who's distracted and when he describes someone who's anxious, he's actually using the same word. And really what this word means, and, and if you're in seminary, I hope you don't accuse me of a root fallacy because this is not happening here, but go ahead. But what this word really means is that you're being dragged and pulled away from your point of reference. Being dragged and pulled away from your point of reference. Now, let's give an example, okay? Let's say you exit your home and you're going to check your mail, and your point of reference is your mailbox because that's where your mail is. Well, as you walk, let's say that you have a one tenth of a mile journey, you have a really nice long driveway. And if you're just one degree off on your point of reference, then you will miss your mailbox in one tenth of a mile's journey by nine feet. And you might say, Ken, that's not a big deal, man, I'm rolling deep. I got a 10-foot wide driveway. All I got to do is just walk right there, and I got it, okay? Let's say you're really balling, and you've got a meeting with Kobe Bryant in L.A., so you, wanna, you don't want to miss it because Kobe's not going to wait on you, all right? So you get in your plane, and you go from Boston all the way to L.A., and let's just say your pilot's, he's got some issues with his eyes, not wearing his glasses, and, and he just misses it by one degree, then from the time you traveled from Boston all the way to Los Angeles, you ended up 45 miles away, give or take. And if you know anything about Los Angeles traffic, it's kind of like Boston traffic. You're not making your meeting with Kobe. But let's just say that doesn't hit home to you. Let's say that you're really adventurous and you want to go from Boston all the way around the world. It's 25,000 miles. And you got the same pilot. Maybe you're flying Delta. Every time I fly with them, I end up somewhere I'm not supposed to be. <laughs> Chicago. I've never been out of the airport in Chicago. Anyway, <laughs> you go around the world, 25,000 miles. By the time you get back to the East Coast, you've flown all the way around the world, you are either just north of Virginia Beach, Virginia, or just right above Ontario, Canada, so that you're 500 miles away. Now, the scariest thing for all of us, especially those of us who serve in this church, is that we can be doing all the right things. We can be serving Jesus with all of our heart, but yet we can miss Jesus. And the longer we walk with the wrong point of reference, the further away from him we can be. And again, I ask you, is it possible for you to be doing all the right things, for you to be serving and missing Jesus? 
just as a summary of these two views. If Jesus is a part of your life, you're either going to hold back your life or you're going to be so focused on your circumstances that you don't even see Jesus at all. Thank God there's one more way to live. Turn with me to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and let's see. Therefore, if you have been raised together with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things below here on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, now everybody say this with me, Christ who is my life. Oh, come on, guys. Come on. When Christ who is my life. You see, there's such a direct parallel and such a correlation that when Christ who is my life, when he's revealed, then I'm also revealed with him. So that when he dies for me, I'm so intrinsically bound to him and his identity that I can't claim my own anymore. See, in both of the first two views, if Jesus is just a part of my life, then I'm holding it back and I'm looking at my stuff or I'm giving everything I've got, but I'm still looking at my stuff. But yet if Jesus is all of my life, then my gaze is not directed at me. My gaze is not directed around anyone else, but it's pointed up to Jesus. My question is, do you have a heavenly gaze? Is your gaze focused on Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, or is it focused on you? And if it is, no matter how great you serve, no matter how much money you have, no matter how many talents you have, it's for nothing. Let me give one last example just to drive this home, and then we'll close. So imagine that your life can be represented by a picture. I'm from the South, so I have to say picture. Good thing I didn't add a diphthong. Now imagine that you're like Anais and Sapphira, that you're a pitcher sitting on a table and that you've had the same water in you for five years. Now if you knew anything about stagnant water, after a while when there's nothing being poured into it and there's nothing being poured out of it, there's no life. The water actually becomes dead. In the first century, they wouldn't even baptize people in a standing pool of water because they were getting sick. You see, the source of water is by being poured into and being poured out of. So if you're like a nice and sapphire, you're just sitting there holding on to everything that you've got. You're afraid that nothing's going to get poured in, but you're also afraid to give anything away. But that's not the only way, right? You can be an empty pitcher. Now, I don't want to make a mess, but imagine this is your life, constantly like this. So that anytime God pours anything into you, it's immediately gone. You're dry, you're thirsty, you're starving to death. And some of us here have been serving so faithfully for so long that maybe we've missed our point of reference. If today you've served so much that you're tired and you're hungry and you're thirsty, you're not being poured into, then take a step back and think, what is my point of reference? See, we all agree that Jesus served, so we should serve. So if you're not serving and you're holding back your life, that's obvious. But if you are serving and you're missing Jesus then what is our point of reference? And then there's the last example. Anybody ever had um, an experience where you spilt coffee on yourself? You know, it's one of those mornings you've still got sleepy in your eye. You're tired every morning for me. And you've got a full cup of coffee, but yet you look at it and you just add that last ounce because that's going to make the difference, <laughs> right? And then you hit that bump and it's all over you. I think that that's the way Jesus wants us to live because we're going to hit bumps. We're going to walk through life and we're going to hit things. But if we're so full that we can't help but spill out onto everything around us, 
then that's what it means. See, that's what Mary was doing. Mary had positioned her life underneath a waterfall trying to catch it in a glass. See, she knew where her source of life came from. Jesus said he came to give us living water, water that overflows so that if our life is a pitcher and it's overflowing, then it is inevitably spilling out over everything that we touch all around us. And it's not about us, it's about Jesus. So again, my question, and it's the same question I've been asking this entire sermon, is what, are, what areas of your life exist that don't look like Jesus? Because if Jesus is all of your life, then all of your life should look like him. If you are sitting and positioned under that waterfall of grace, then you are going to look like Jesus. You're going to be overflowing. My challenge for us today, and everything that we've talked about is that we would just relinquish our control, that we would let go of the things that we're holding so tightly to, and that we would just let go and position ourselves underneath God's flow of amazing grace.